Welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast with a series called Promises and Power. The series focuses on Israel capturing the promised land, guided by a new leader, Joshua. Disobeying God destroys the sinner and damages the innocent. In Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, it says, Israel violated the instructions about the things set apart for the Lord. Today's episode, Disobedience, will examine the consequences of disobedience and become more aware that our sin, which is all seen by God, damages our lives and the lives of others. Here's Associate Pastor Josh Masters. Stay standing, stay standing just for a moment. Do you believe that God is a God of revival? Do you believe that God can bring revival to this church and to this country? And are we willing to stand together to make that happen? Then give a shout of praise to God and expectation. So it's me again. Uh, Perry uh, reached out to me this morning. He is sick. Um, and he asked me to fill in, so um, we don't know what I'm going to say, and we'll, we'll just see what happens. But we are going to continue our series on the book of Joshua, surveying the life of Joshua and what it means to be a true leader, and all of us are called to be leaders. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you are a leader. And so we're going to continue to do that. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 7. But before we do that, I I have the opportunity because um, the opportunity and the honor because Perry is not here uh, to do a little bit of church business with you that I'm honored and excited to do. Some of you may have heard the rumor that there is going to be a transition coming in this next year in the life of Brookwood Church. And Perry, uh, in the summer, is going to be transitioning into a different role. And we have a new senior pastor coming in named Brian Jones. And he will take over the church in June. But he's arriving now so that he can get to know our staff and become part of our culture and, and um, become part of who we are before that happens. So this is his first weekend here. And don't you think it would be nice if we welcomed him? Yeah, yeah Brian, can you come up? Brian Jones. crawling under the security gate. Yeah, let's welcome him. This is Brookwood. A Brookwood welcome. Brian is awesome. Hey, let's not uh, clap. This guy preached an incredible sermon. If you should clap for anything, it's the fact that how many, how many, how much notice have you had? Uh, it was about six o'clock this morning. Six o'clock this morning. And yeah. I'm telling you, God has a word. But so, it's him. So it is, him. it is, it is. It's him. But uh, I'm yeah. grateful for you. Uh, but I had the opportunity, uh, the trustees, as well as the, the leadership pastors and the trustees, the entire advisory team went away uh, this weekend to have uh, about 24 hours of prayer together. And Brian joined us and it was a powerful time of not only getting to know each other, but vulnerability and encouraging one another and building one another up. And so we want to welcome him. We want to encourage him. Uh, I had originally planned to pray for him, but he asked if he could pray for us and pray for the service. And since I didn't know I was preaching, I will take those prayers. So, Brian. He doesn't know this, but because it was so good, I'm going to send some text messages at 6 a.m. in the future. And uh, you better get used to this. Yes, all right. Uh, In all sincerity, though, there was a few moments, and I shared with him backstage, uh, I was sitting right over there the first service, and uh, when you were speaking about just things of being disobedient, when when things are easy, 
and when it's impossible, I just, I really believe God's got a seasoned word. And uh, Josh and I were talking about this backstage. You might be aware of this. Uh, we didn't know they were going to sing that song, God of Revival. And you might be aware of this. There's actually a revival that is breaking out in Kentucky at Asbury College. In fact, in the 70s, isn't that amazing? Yeah. And uh, in the 70s, uh, you know, when the spirit of God fell, and you know, you've probably been in those moments where words fall short and people just, they don't want to leave. They're not thinking about what's happening. And that happened in the 70s. And uh, just this past week, uh, some students were worshiping and God just broke through in a way that just, they wanted to keep being in the presence of God. And so uh, one thing that as I was sitting down there thinking, uh, I was talking to a pastor friend of mine and he studied all sorts of revivals. And he was asked this question, like, what is the number one thing that causes revivals? Because if you look at revivals, there are different denominations, different areas, different geographies. And I've never forgotten what he said. He said the number one cause of revival in everything he studied is this. God goes where he's wanted. And um, I'd love to just pray two things. One, I'd love to pray for Josh. I really do believe there's a word that he's going to speak over this community. It's already stirred me. But I would pray that as my first day that, that this church would be a place, and I believe it is, that wants God even more so that we can see more of him. So I'd be honored to pray uh, over our time together. Holy Spirit. First of all, I just thank you for the word that you have seasoned to be spoken today, God. Um, we might not have been aware of the circumstances. First, we pray just a quick, speedy recovery for Perry, but we also pray, God, that uh, you would unleash your word. We, we thank you that the scriptures say the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. So I pray that as Josh opens your word, that you would do what you are faithful to do, which is to show up in power. I pray that his words would be seasoned, that it would be as though he's not opening up some story that happened thousands of years ago, but it may be a word that pierces our hearts as a church today. I thank you for uh, just how you've wired him, how he's gifted, how he's talented, how my first day here, he's already ministered to me. And I know he's ministered to hundreds of people in this room, and I just pray an extra blessing over him, favor as he opens your word, but I also pray for the congregation uh, that there would just be more of a hunger in us than ever before. I pray that you would break any sort of familiarity, that you would just awaken us like a young child sees things for the first time. I pray that we would just encounter you with such a longing and such a passion that you may stir and fan into flame what you're already doing to this church in new and fresh ways. So we, God, at the start of this service, we ask you not to be a part, but we ask you to be the center of everything. God, it is in your amazing, mighty, wonderful name we pray. Everyone agreed and said amen. Thank you. Okay, so go ahead and turn to Joshua 7. We love you, Brian. Thank you for being here. Him and his wife, Stephanie, are fantastic. And uh, go ahead, and if you would take out your outline, and if someone could shout out to me what I'm preaching on. <laughs> Disobedience. Okay, good. That's what we'll go with then. Disobedience. And our theme verse for today is uh, Joshua 7.1, and it says this, Israel violated, pay attention to that word, Israel violated the instructions about the things set apart for the Lord. 
And then what were God's instructions? Let's review very quickly uh, some of our verses from last week that were in chapter, chapter 6 before Jericho. In chapter 6, God says, Jericho and everything in it must be completely destroyed as an offering to the Lord. And then he said, except for Rahab and her family, right? Remember, God spared her because she helped the spies, right? And then verse 18 of chapter 6 says, do not take any of the things set apart for destruction or you yourselves will be completely destroyed. Now, the word for destruction here, the Hebrew word is cherim. And Perry talked about it last week. And cherim means uh, that it is devoted to God. It is an offering to God. So it's not just destruction for the sake of destruction. It's not destruction to make a point. It is set, up, set aside as holy for God. And it's destroyed as a sacrifice, just like the lamb. And, and then it says, and you will bring trouble on the camp of Israel if you don't follow those instructions. Verse 19, everything made from silver, gold, bronze, or iron is sacred to the Lord, and it must be brought into his treasury, right? So we're giving this to God. It's for God to use. It's for an offering. And this morning, we are going to consider the consequences of disobeying God's direction. And sometimes the consequences are severe. The first thing that we find in the first thing in your outline is disobedience of God's direction injures the innocent. It injures the innocent. How many people here have heard the phrase, uh, it was a victimless crime? Victimless crime. When it comes to sin and disobedience to God, there's no such thing. There's no such thing as a victimless crime. It will harm you and it will harm the people around you. And it will never only harm you. It will affect the community. Joshua 7.1. But Israel violated the instructions about the things set apart for the Lord. And a man named Achan, Achan had stolen some of these dedicated things. So the Lord was very angry with who? The Israelites, not just Achan. And the Hebrew word for violated there, remember I told you to pay attention to that. The word for violated in Hebrew describes adultery. A violation of the deepest theft. It was a spiritual adultery against God for breaking the rules of the cherim, the, the offering that is supposed to be made to him, the things that are supposed to be set apart and holy for him. So now we'll turn to Joshua, verse 2, chapter 7, verse 2. Joshua sent some of his men from Jericho to spy out the town of Ai, east of Bethel, near Beth-Avon. So I think Perry had a map. Do we have a map? Yeah, so here's a map. So you can see uh, going west from Jericho and a little bit up is I. That's not artificial intelligence, <laughs> even though that's what the Israelites were using. But that, that's not what it is. That's the name of the city. It's about 27 acres, so bigger than Jericho, but less po densely populated. They probably had farming. Uh, and it was about 15 miles from Jericho. And it was east of Bethel and near Beth-Avon. 
So verse three. When they returned, they told Joshua, there's no need for all of us to go up there. It won't take more than two or 3,000 men to attack I. Since there are so few of them, don't make all of our people struggle to go up there. What did they not mention? God. 30 Brookwood points to you, Jody. They didn't mention God at all. So that means that they had become overconfident, even arrogant, because they were so proud of their ability, their ability, after defeating Jericho. Who defeated Jericho? What did they do? Nothing. They went for a walk. But they've forgotten that, and they've started taking credit for what God did. And now that they started taking credit and they have pride and arrogance, they think they don't need God anymore. So last week we saw how Jericho was going to be impossible to conquer without God. So they obeyed. See, when we are facing an impossible task, that is when we have a tendency to get on our knees and start praying to God. When we know that we can't defeat something, that is when we start coming before God and getting on our knees and saying, God, this is impossible. You are the one with the power. But as soon as we see something in front of us that we don't think we need God for, we leave God in the corner and we start and try to go do it by ourselves. Now that they think that there's something that they can do on their own, they immediately remove God from their vocabulary. Have you ever done that? Have you ever said, oh, I've got this one, God. Verse four. So approximately 3,000 warriors were sent, but they were soundly defeated, and it sounds quickly. The men of Ai chased the Israelites from the town gate as far as the quarries, and they killed about 36 who were retreating down the slope. The Israelites were paralyzed with fear at this turn of events, and their courage melted away. So now instead of acting like the people of God, they're behaving like the Canaanites that we saw in chapter 2. So this defeat and the loss of these 36 warriors were undoubtedly not only a shock but traumatizing. Because Israel had suffered no casualties up until this point. That impossible siege that they had to make on Jericho, that thing that was impossible, those impossible walls, not a single Israelite was lost. And now in a much weaker foe, they've lost 36 men. And Israel lost not because of the skill of that town's soldiers. They lost because they angered God. And they walked away from God. And they said they didn't need his help for victory. So he didn't fight for them. And it may may even be possible that God enabled that enemy to conquer them, to beat them. 
Israel forgot that God defeated Jericho. The song goes, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. He didn't. God did. Israel forgot that God defeated Jericho, that it was a spiritual battle, that it was a supernatural battle, not a military battle. There was nothing about their military ability that made them win anything at Jericho. It was only through the supernatural. And they were given instructions by Moses before they even got there in Deuteronomy. The camp must be holy. Not the tents. When he says the camp must be holy, he's not talking about the tents or the way they rake the sand. He's talking about the people. The people of God must be holy. For the Lord your God moves around in your camp to protect you and to defeat your enemies. He must not see any shameful thing among you or he will turn away from you. Achan, as we read a few minutes ago, was the actual sinner. But all of Israel was held responsible for his sin because the sin was in the midst of the congregation. Yeast cannot infect just a little bit of the dough. Yeast goes all through the dough. Disobedience to God, mistrust of God, it gets into your community. It gets into your family, it gets into your community, it gets into your church. And then we say, why is there no revival? Joshua 7, verse 6. Joshua and the elders of Israel tore their clothing in dismay. They threw dust on their heads and they bowed their face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord until evening. Now the, the elders of Israel, that would be like the heads of the families and the clans. They served as judges. And the throwing the dust on their heads, that's a sign of mourning and despair. Verse 7. Then Joshua cried out, O sovereign God, why did you bring us across the Jordan River if you are going to let the Amorites kill us? Do you understand the irony of that? He starts out, oh, sovereign God, you are sovereign. You make the choices. And then the next sentence is, why did you make this choice? Oh, sovereign Lord, why did you bring us across the Jordan River if you are going to let the Amorites kill us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side. Who does that sound like? Where have we heard language like that before? Where? In the wilderness, right? The Israelites, oh, woe is us. We're in the wilderness. If only we had stayed in Egypt. And now they're going into the promised land. They had a victory. And at the first setback, even Joshua is like, why did we ever leave the desert? Why did we even come here? And then Joshua says in verse 8, Lord, what can I say now that the, Israel's, the Israelites have fled from its enemies? For when the Canaanites and all the other people living in the land hear about it, they will surround us and they will wipe us out and our name will be taken off the face of the earth. He's whining. Listen, 
sometimes God will discipline his children to draw us closer to him and make us more holy. And his plan is always greater than our plan and we can't see his plan. So when things don't go the way that we want them to go, it doesn't mean God has abandoned his plan for you. It means that you didn't understand the plan that he had for you. God doesn't abandon his plan for people. So then we can choose, are we going to whine and start doubting God's promises or are we going to dig in together and lean into God and seek his promises and say, God, what do you have? And if I didn't understand how you were going to fulfill your promise, I can't wait to see how you do. Because it'll be amazing. But Joshua allowed his fear to overtake him. He thought this defeat would embolden the enemies, resulting in the total defeat of Israel. But while we were at this prayer retreat with with Brian and the other pastors and trustees, one of our trustees said to me this weekend, said a misstep is not a reason to completely abandon the path God has for you. You just step back onto the path. Look what Joshua says next, verse 7, verse 9, halfway through. He says, we'll be completely destroyed. And then what will happen to the honor of your great name? That's a little manipulative, right? Oh, we're in trouble. Guess your name is going to be marred now. So Joshua challenged God and then he appeals to his reputation, God's reputation, his promise to bring Israel into the land. And you may remember Moses used the exact same argument to prevent Israel from being destroyed in Numbers 14, 15. Because even when we are manipulative and we try to manipulate God, which you can't do, God is still a God of integrity. He's still a God of his word. And he actually likes it when we remind him of his word. But check your heart in it. Joshua was convinced by the words of the scouts that they could take this city. But he never asked God. He never asked God. Spiritual leaders must always seek God's direction for every new challenge and every new initiative. When the spies came back, And they said, we can easily take this city. Joshua should have gone to God and said, how do you want us to take this city? Especially after the experience at Jericho, where he knows God didn't want them to just follow the regular route of military work. But he doesn't go to God. He goes, if you say we can take them, let's take them. We are all leaders. If you're a believer in Christ, you are a leader. And there are two great mistakes that we can make when following God's path for us. The first one is not trusting God to do the impossible. And the second is thinking we can do the easy without him. We've read about two sets of spies. The first set of spies was sent in by Moses into the land. And all of them except Joshua and Caleb, 
Joshua was on the right side that time, came back and they said, there's no way that we can take these people. They're like giants. There's no way that we can take this land. And everyone believed them. They didn't believe that God could do the impossible. And now Israel is falling trapped to the other side, thinking we can do the easy without God. We can set God aside for the things that we think we can do on our own. Trust me, you can't take a breath without God. You can't do anything without God. So as soon as our attitude becomes, I don't need God for this, then we are in trouble. We have to abandon those two things, thinking that we can do the easy without God or not expecting, to God, expecting God to do the hard when we can't. We journey the same with him in both. Achan's sin harmed his people. One man's sin harmed the entire group and led to the death of 36 warriors. And then later, he lost his life and his family. One person living in sin, disobeying God, disregarding his direction will damage many. It will damage the whole group. One person living immorally hurts whomever they're directly involved with. But it also harms everyone who cares for that person. Immorality and anger and abuse in a family destroys a family and it can wound children forever. Addiction creates anger and fear and dishonesty and mistrust. And then that spreads into relationships, which spreads into your community, which spreads into your church. Unforgiveness is a poison. Your unforgiveness will hurt the entire body. Your gossip will hurt the entire body. And prayer requests are not a workaround for gossip. Those of you who are doing that, we know it. Our individual sins affect the whole group. We are one body in Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 20, 12 through 27. We depend on each other to seek Christ and live by faith. So what one of us does affects everybody else. My faith or my lack of faith in something influences yours. And yours influences my faith. Disobedience in the body affects the fruit of the entire body. You've heard the phrase, the bad apple spoils the bunch, right? That's, that's true. That's not just a weird thing to say. If you have a rotting apple and you put it with healthy apples, the healthy apples don't make the bad apple healthy. The unhealthy apples make the healthy ap apples unhealthy. So it has to be removed. We have been praying for revival for the last year. About a year ago is when I did my series on becoming a praying church and we started praying for revival and we've been praying for a year. But unless we are a people who are willing to address sin at the individual level, revival is not going to come. 
Revival will not come if we are not willing to journey together and look at each other and call out our sins and confess our sins and repent our sins and move together toward holiness because corruption in the body will prevent revival. William Fettler, one of the great missionaries to the Russian Empire and to the Baltics, he said that Joshua chapter 7, which is what we're in today, it's amazing that God brought me to this article this week because I didn't know I'd be preaching on this. But he said Joshua chapter 7 is the greatest lesson on revival in the Bible. How to attain it and how to prevent it. And William Fettler believed, and I tend to believe with him, that the natural state of the church should be ongoing revival, perpetual revival. A healthy church without corruption will have revival after revival after revival, not every 50 years, but every 50 minutes, there should be a revival happening. And he said this, God will not use a corrupt army to win holy victories. God will not use a corrupt army to win holy victories. Now, I just added that a few minutes before we started, so it's not up on the screen. I'll put it on Instagram if you guys want to get that quote. Um, this afternoon, it's at the Bat Pastor, or because I'm a geek, at the Bat Pastor, or just search Joshua J. Masters. And I, I know Perry has told you, like, Instagram's evil and there's only people doing the, what, what does he do this? I don't, it's, listen, it's unsettling when Perry does it. And it's unsettling when I do it. So you're not going to find that on my Instagram. So it's safe to go to mine. But we must take seriously, we must take seriously the idea that God will not use a corrupt army to win holy victories. We can come to church or we can be the church. Are my actions, ask yourself this, are my actions affecting innocent people negatively? Is my attitude, my heart, what I'm holding back from God, is it affecting the fruit of this body? Is it preventing revival? The second thing we need to understand is that disobedience of God's direction is immediately known by God. It's immediately known by God. That's your second filling. Verse 10, but the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why are you lying on your face like this? And you could read that angry, but I think there's something more fatherly about it. Get up. Why are you lying on your face like this? Why are you whining? I have the answer. So he rebuked Joshua, but he doesn't stop there. He, he then explains the reason for their defeat. Verse 11. Israel has sinned and broken my covenant. They have stolen some of the things that I commanded must be set apart for me. And they have not only stolen them, but they have lied about it. And they've hidden the things among their own belongings. And all of that was forbidden in Deuteronomy 7. What are you hiding from God that belongs to him? 
What are you hiding from God that belongs to him? You know what, actually, let's just take, let's just take a minute. Everybody close your, close your eyes. Let's be quiet for a second. And ask God, God, what am I hiding from you that belongs to you? God, what do you want me to do about it? What action do you want me to take that honors you? Withholding from God blocks revival in your life. You need a revival in your life. You need revival in your family. Hiding things from God that you think belong to you that don't will block that revival. And having that happen in our congregation will stop revival in the church. What are you hiding that belongs to God? Now, a lesser man would once again point out the change to the giving and remind you to do that, but I'm not like that, so I won't. But we have to take seriously, it's not just giving, it's every aspect of your life. What are you trying to keep that doesn't belong to you? Verse 12, he says, because of that, that is why the Israelites are running from their enemies in defeat, because God didn't fight for them. For now, Israel itself has been set apart for destruction. I will not remain with you any longer unless, unless you destroy the things among you that were set apart for destruction, that were set apart for the offering. So God has held all of the people responsible. Even though only Achan stole the items, the entire body is responsible for the sin. The principle of Cherim was known by all the people. Moses explained it in the book of Deuteronomy. He likely explained it to them verbally. So this offense was a violation of God's covenant, his agreement and his promise with the people of Israel. God's words may sound threatening, but basically what he's saying, if you boil it down, he's saying either Israel obeys God's commands regarding the cherim, regarding the offering, or Israel will become the offering. Give me the cherim or you become the cherim set aside for destruction. Everyone will be held responsible. Does that seem harsh to you? It can seem stark. And this is one of the places where people might go, oh, the Old Testament God, but God is consistent. What was the number one thing Jesus was sent to earth to do on his earthly ministry? He said it multiple times. What is his primary task? Save the lost is a way he did what he was called to do. 
That's not his primary task. Are you surprised? What? Someone said it. To glorify the Father. His primary job was to glorify the Father. And he did that by coming to save sins. But the glory of the Father is a serious thing when that's the primary task of Jesus' existence. God will not bless a body that dishonors the Father. His holiness cannot be compromised. But this is also compassionate, I think. I think it, it may come across harsh, but I think if you look at the details of it, there's some compassionate, if not firm, parenting going on. Because look at the pattern in the last verses. First, he rebukes the offense. He goes, this is what you did wrong, my child. Then he explains why it was wrong so that they have an understanding for the future. Then he explains what the natural consequences are and why and why those consequences make sense. And then finally, he explains, how do you make it right? Much too often in our discipling and in our parenting do we stop with the first one. We just rebuke what's wrong and make them feel bad about it. And we never explain why it was wrong. We never help them understand. We don't explain why the consequences are the consequences that they are, and then we don't give them a path back Now God is explaining how to make it right. Joshua 7, 13. Get up. Command the people to purify themselves in preparation for tomorrow. That means washing themselves, abstaining from sex, becoming holy. It's all outlined in Exodus 19. In the morning you must present yourselves and the tribe. Oops, sorry, I skipped a verse. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. Hidden among you, O Israel, are things set apart for the Lord. You will never defeat your enemies until you remove these things from among you. In the morning, you must present yourselves by tribes, and the Lord will point out the tribe to which the guilty man belongs. That tribe must come forward with its clans, and the Lord will point out the guilty clan. And that clan will then come forward and the Lord will point out the guilty family. And finally, each member of the guilty family must come forward and one by one. And then the one who has stolen what was set apart for destruction for the offering will himself be burned with fire along with everything he has for he has broken the covenant of the Lord and has done a horrible thing in Israel. That's a startling ending, but I want you to make note of the language that's used here in this last paragraph. It's frightening. He does not say, we will bring forward the tribe that has the guilty man. He says, we will bring forward the guilty tribe. He doesn't say, we will then bring forward the clan that holds the man who is guilty. No, we will bring forward the guilty clan and then the guilty family, and then finally the guilty person. His guilt is transferred to everyone in his community. That is the seriousness with which God takes his people and their holiness. That's the seriousness with which God takes his church. 
Achan and all he had became cherim. Set apart for destruction for stealing the cherim. It's an important point for us to understand that God saw everything. Nothing was hidden from him. You may be able to fool your coworkers or your family or your church body, but you cannot fool God. God sees. God sees. God sees. Hebrews 4.13 says this. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. So are we aware that God sees everything? Do we live our lives in the understanding that he sees everything and that he not only sees everything, but he is a holy God seeing everything? We have lost our fear of God. We are not supposed to be terrified of God. We're not supposed to be afraid of him in a way that we can't approach him. But there is a terror behind the holiness of who God is. And the Western church has lost it. And so, because of that, disobedience of God's direction also leads and indicates distrust in God. Disobedience of God's direction indicates distrust of God. Verse 16, and then we're going to jump down uh, past 17 and we'll just sort of summarize it a little bit. But verse 16 and then jumping down into the middle of 18. Early the next morning, Joshua brought the tribes of Israel before the Lord. And then what happens is the tribe of Judas is singled out, then the clan of Zerah is singled out, then the family of Zimri is singled out, and then Achan is finally singled out. So why didn't God call him out? God could have just gone to Joshua and said, it's Achan, go get him. But I think God, again, is he's showing, he's showing the Israelites the consequences of sin and how one person's behavior affects the rest of the group. Distrust in God is a poison that spreads. Verse 19. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to God, the God of Israel, by telling the truth. Make your confession and tell me what you have done. Don't hide it from me. See, confession demonstrates that God is correct and I'm wrong. What's the other word for confession? The one that we don't like. What is it? Agreement is correct. What's another word for confession? Repentance. Exactly right. But repentance is heavier because it means not only am I apologizing, not only am I making amends, but I start moving in a different direction. We glorify God when we speak truth and we dishonor him when we lie. Verse 20. Achim replied, it is true, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. Among the plunder, I saw a beautiful robe from Babylon, 200 silver coins, and a bar of gold weighing more than a pound. Check out this next sentence. I wanted them so much that I 
took them. That is sin in every one of our lives. I saw it and I wanted it so much, I took it. He said, they are hidden in the ground beneath my tent with the silver buried even deeper than the rest. So he took small items that he could bury, but even that reveals his sin, right? Because now he can no longer say, oh, I guess I must have gone to the bathroom when you explained that we weren't supposed to take anything. I didn't know. Then it would just be in his bag, right? But he knew he had to hide it. He knew what he was doing was wrong. And what Aiken stole was worth about what an average worker would earn in their entire lifetime. That's how much he took. A lifetime of average wages. Now, Israelite warriors were usually allowed to take plunder, right? That was part of the rules that are laid out. They just have very specific rules for these cities. So it would be normal for them to be able to take plunder, but it was very clear that he couldn't this time. Once something was designated as cherim, as the offering to God, everything belongs to God. Are we doing that? Are we giving to God everything that belongs to him? Achan didn't trust God to provide his family for his family's needs. Even though they had been sustained in the wilderness, even though God had miraculously brought them across the Jordan River, even though he had miraculously brought them victory over Jericho, still our natural tendency is, no matter how many miracles we see in the flesh, is that every time we see that we can make it happen on our own, we take that opportunity and we leave God behind. That's what our flesh calls us to do. That's why the Israelites... Chapter after chapter after chapter, you go, how many miracles do these people need to get in line? How many do you need? How many miracles has God provided in your life? And still we return. Every time we think we can handle it, we leave God behind. Achan disobeyed God to possess wealth that he couldn't even enjoy because he had to hide it. But had he waited, God was going to give him plunder and spoils from other cities in Canaan. Will you wait for God's blessing or will you try to force a blessing? Will you wait for what God has for you or will you try to make something happen for yourself? And the story continues. It says in verse 22, so Joshua sent some of the men to make a search and they took the things from the tent and they brought them to Joshua and all of the Israelites were there and they laid them on the ground in the presence of the Lord. This was at the entrance of the tabernacle, God's abode where, where he dwelt with the people. How do you think Achan was feeling in that minute? He'd not only betrayed God, he'd betrayed everybody in the camp. He was probably feeling shame, disappointment, fear. But I think he may, this is my own opinion, you can do with it as you will. I think he may have been feeling a little bit of relief. Because when you hide things from God and you keep secrets from God, 
it harms you. Then Joshua and all the Israelites took Achan and the silver and the robe and the bar of gold and his sons and his daughters, his cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, tent, everything, everything that he had. And they brought them to the valley of Achor. And what that means in Hebrew, it means the place of disaster, bringing disaster. Then verse 25, Joshua says, Joshua said to Achan, why have you brought trouble on us? The Lord will now bring trouble on you. And all the Israelites stoned Achan and his family, and he burned their bodies. They piled a great heap of stones over Achan, which remains to this day. That is why the place has been called the Valley of Trouble ever since. And so the Lord was no longer angry. So the family members had to be involved, otherwise they wouldn't have been punished. They knew that that money was being hidden in the tent. They were part of stealing what was set aside for God. And then, after they were killed and burned, a great pile, a heap of stones was put over Achan, which remains to this day, it says. But I want you to remember that there are other parts of this story earlier in the Exodus where God commands them to raise up stones as an altar to remember the glory of God. So don't miss this. You are going to be building an altar of something to worship. Are you going to build an altar of stones that represent the glory of God or are you going to build an altar to your selfishness? You will build an altar. Which one? But once they did this, the Lord was no longer angry at Israel because they had followed the instructions. Do we live as though we don't trust God? Do we try to selfishly provide for ourselves rather than trusting that God has a plan and a path that is greater than we understand. Our memory verse this week was Proverbs 28, 13. People who conceal their sins will no longer prosper. But if they will confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. Mercy. Are we a people who want to see revival? Yes or no? Do we believe that God can bring revival? Then we must become a people who are willing to look at ourselves, evaluate ourselves, put ourselves before others, and get rid of the things in our lives that are affecting not only us, not only our family, but the entire body. If we want revival to come, we need to be a people that are accountable to one another. And more importantly, we must be a people who are accountable to God. Every week we have care volunteers up here. I'm going to ask the care volunteers and our pastors to come up a little bit early. Come up right now. And every week when they come up, we say that they are here to encourage you 
and anoint you with oil for healing and, and encourage you and pray with you and talk to you and they are here for that. But maybe today is the day that there are people here who say, I have things that I need to repent for. There are sins in my life I need to repent for and things I need to confess and I need to be made right with God and I need to accept the things that God wants for me in my life. Are you willing to be in a revival, a personal revival and a church revival? It requires confession and these people will hear you. They won't judge you. They will encourage you and they will celebrate with you the fact that you are taking a step toward God. So is today the day that you repent? As I pray, I'm going to encourage you, come forward. There will be no judgment. There will be rejoicing. You don't have to travel alone. Father God, you are a God of mercy. You are a God of healing. And you are a God of hope. And we ask for revival. We ask for revival through repentance. Lord, grab hold of our hearts. Not so that we feel ashamed, but so that we can be free. Free to follow you. Free to represent you. Free to be your ambassadors to a broken world. Lord, put a burden on the hearts of those you want to come forward. Not so that they can be seen as sinners because we have all sinned, but we are saints in you and we want to claim it. We want to claim that we are saints in you so that we can do your work. Lord, save many. We give you praise because you are worthy of praise and we ask for this mighty work with the authority of Jesus Christ that you have given us. And we ask it in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Please don't be afraid to come forward and receive healing. Thanks for joining us for this week's podcast. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, it says in Romans 3.23. Thankfully, God's love is great, and he sent Jesus to restore a relationship with him. God is full of grace and mercy and invites you to come home. Scripture says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Find some quiet space this week and read Psalm 51 and Isaiah 49, verses 8 through 10. Tell God about specific ways you've disobeyed his commands and thank him for the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John chapter 1, verse 29. On next week's episode, we'll continue the series in Joshua, Promises and Power. To prepare, read Joshua chapter 8. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast. If you like what you hear, please leave a review so that others can experience a transformed life in Christ. Thanks for listening and have a great week.